Thank you. Thanks very much, and thanks uh, for the invite and for, to everyone who's helped uh, organise today. Um, so I'm uh, going to talk about uh, this report, uh, Power to the People, um, How Stronger Unions Can Deliver Economic Justice, which uh, I wrote when uh, I was at Institute for Public Policy Research. Um, I should say I've since moved on, uh, so I'm now at Learning and Work Institute, which explains the quite Spartan um, layout of my slides. So I'm talking about the the report that I wrote rather than uh, representing uh, IPPR. Um, and this report was part of the Commission on Economic Justice, which IPPR did, which uh, launched the final report last year, about um, July time, I think, which looked at uh, economic policy in the round. And, and this report I did um, was specifically looking at trade unions and the labour market. Um, I should also say it's very good to be back in uh, Warwick. I, I haven't been here in 13 years, and I, uh, I was last here in the library writing about Soviet economic policy during the, um, uh, the Civil War. So uh, it's good to, good to, good to be back. Um, so uh, I'm going to reflect a bit on the decline of the um, union uh, movement uh, in, in the UK, uh, the impact on workers and on the economy, uh, and where I think we should go from here and why should we why we should be concerned about the decline of the union movement and I'm going to set out six kind of propositions uh, as part of it. Um, so the first proposition here is that trade unions and collective bargaining are goods both for workers but for the economy as well and uh, the I'll start with the kind of obviously the fundamental purpose of what trade unions are for which is to aggregate the, the bargaining powers of of working people to help them uh, improve their pay and the quality of work and to help them win a kind of fair share of the wealth that they help generate. Um, and w the decline in union density and collective bargaining coverage, um, I would argue, has contributed to a very significant imbalance of power uh, at work between uh, em employees and employers, or more specifically between a large number of employees who lack bargaining power and employers. Um, so uh, I'll start with uh, the impact on the... Uh, labour share. So, the, the, as has been seen um, in the UK, is similar to many other advanced economies. The decline in collective bargaining and union membership that we've that we've seen has uh, been matched by a decline in the labour uh, share of, of GDP um, and a stark rise in inequality. Um, and there's kind of a number of aspects uh, of this uh, this this kind of issue of uh, growing inequality that we've seen alongside the decline. Um, in, in union membership. Um, so the first is there's a, there's a very significant relationship at the firm level. Uh, so some work by Bryson and Forth has shown that uh, wages are less distributed at employers where there's union recognition, uh, and that's true controlling for sector as well. So uh, unionised firms uh, in the same sectors tend to, be, uh, tend to have less within firm inequality than unionised firms, uh, other ununionised firms in the sector. Um, this graph shows the relationship over time in the UK. So the green line is union membership. Um, uh, so it peaks there at about 13 million in 1979 um, uh, and then falls thereafter. And, and what it shows is that the period where union membership uh, grew and where collective bargaining coverage also grew um, was, a, was a period where uh, England became much more, uh, well, the UK became much more equal economically and that's measured by this yellow line, which is the percentage of national income that goes to the top 1% uh, of earners. And what it can show is, is as membership increased, there was a very significant decline in the, in the share uh, of, of income taken by the top uh, 1%. And as uh, union membership has 
declined, um, so the, that share of wealth captured by the 1% has, has nearly tripled. So as well as the relationship at firm level, the relationship across time in the UK, there's also a relationship uh, across uh, advanced economies. Uh, and what this graph shows uh, is there's a pretty close relationship um, between uh, economic inequality uh, and the coverage of collective bargaining coverage in OECD member states. Um, so higher levels of collective bargaining coverage are uh, associated with uh, lower levels of inequality. Um, and I, I mean, just briefly on, on in inequality, I mean, there's a number of reasons why, why that matters. So there's obviously the social justice argument that uh, equality in and of itself is good. But if that doesn't motivate you, there's a lot of other arguments as well. So OECD and others have recently acknowledged the fact that higher levels of inequality actually act as a drag on growth. Um, and also the work of uh, Wilkinson and Pickett has shown uh, the very strong link between high levels of inequality and really bad social outcomes across a range of areas from crime to mental health problems uh, and lack of trust in society. Um, but beyond inequality, there's also very... Uh, many links between trade union uh, presence in a workplace and trade union <coughs> recognition uh, and other aspects of good work. Um, and this is increasingly important given the recognition that there's more that matters uh, beyond just pay in terms of quality of work. And so there's a number of measures here, with, uh, aspects here. Um, most of them picked up from the Bryce, uh, Bryson and Forth report in 2017 for the TUC. So, um, Work, uh, workplaces with, with uh, trade unions are much more likely to provide workplace uh, uh, provide training to their employees and to have that training distributed uh, relatively evenly than firms without uh, trade unions. Um, uh, work, trade, uh, workplaces with recognised trade unions uh, tend to have shorter working hours and less unpaid overtime. Um, in terms of flexibility, uh, there's much more kind of uh, worker benefiting flexibility at, at workplaces with tra recognised trade unions, so things like family-friendly uh, working hours. Uh, there tends to be much better benefits in terms of um, uh, enhanced uh, sick pay, um, enhanced pension contributions uh, at firms with uh, recognised trade unions, and there tends to be greater levels of job security and a less, likely <coughs> less likelihood of uh, compulsory redundancies at firms uh, with uh, trade unions recognised. So we would start by arguing... Um, unions are good for the labour share, they're good for distributing that share of the labour share equally and they're good for the quality of work too. Um, which means we should be, uh, we would argue, uh, I keep saying we, uh, IPPR did argue, I would argue um, that we should be concerned about the decline in union membership that we've seen uh, since uh, the kind of late 70s, early 80s. <laughs> so the second proposition is that uh, the workers who can most benefit from trade union membership are least likely to join and membership is set to decline uh, further in the coming years. Um, this is not to say that um, uh, trade union membership can benefit all workers, but the people who could most benefit from collective action, the people who individually have least power in the labour market, least bargaining power, are currently much less likely to be in trade unions. Um, so I'll start with the, with the decline. Um, so obviously we, uh, the, the previous graph showed the decline in trade union membership. Uh, so it's fallen by about half uh, since 1980. It seems to have slightly plateaued in, in, in the last few years. 
um, the declining collective bargaining coverage, which is arguably more important, has been even greater. It's fallen by uh, about two thirds. Uh, much, uh, and we've seen these falls across the uh, advanced economies, but the falls in trade union membership, and particularly in collective bargaining coverage, have been much larger in the UK than in other advanced uh, economies. Um, and that uh, union membership is is unevenly distributed across the economy. Um, so, as I said, the, the members who could, the workers who could most benefit at the moment are least likely to be um, in a union. I've just realised I cut off the key from this graph. Um, but the yellow line is trade union density by uh, gross hourly pay decile in the private sector. The green is the public sector and the purple is the whole economy. And what you can see is that across both the public and the private sectors, uh, it's the workers who are, have the lowest pay who are least likely uh, to be in a trade union. So the workers who could least, uh, have least power in the labour market, um, who could most benefit from that union wage premium that we know exists, are currently least likely to be uh, in, in a trade union. Um, it's a similar pattern in terms of uh, skill and qualification levels. Lower skilled workers and workers who lack high level qualifications are, again, less likely to be in trade unions. Um, it's a similar pattern by industry. So this graph here shows that union density tends to be lower in the sectors which have a higher proportion of low pay. So both on an individual level and on an industry level, unions are less present where they're needed most. Um, there's also an interesting relationship with uh, vulnerability to automation too. So the sectors where um, Frey and Osborne say there's most potential for automation <coughs> uh, have least presence of trade unions at the moment. And as I said, there's a risk that this uh, decline in union membership may continue. So this is analysis done by um, Kelly and Tomlinson at Resolution Trust, which looks at um, union membership by age, um, and membership is far, far lower among younger workers and has fallen faster <coughs> among younger workers than the same age cohorts, sorry, than the same age groups um, a couple of decades ago. So it's fallen most among young people. And what they do here is they project forwards um, this kind of the change that we've seen in recent years. They assume that these age cohorts are the same likelihood to join a union as they get older. But what we can see is because of that shrinkage among young people in particular, the uh, union density is, is expected to continue to fall. Uh, and there's currently 2.5 million union members, uh, nearly half of the total, just under half, um, who are aged over 50 and so who are expected to retire in the next two decades. Uh, and the movement has really struggled to recruit young workers to replace those workers leaving the labour market, which means that um, if everything else remains equal, we could see a very significant continued decline in union density, which, as I said at the start, could be, would be very, very serious in terms of the balance of power in the labour market. Um, the third point is that public <coughs> policy has contributed to the decline uh, in union membership and collective bargaining coverage, so public policy should be part of the solution. Um, so I was thinking on the way up that uh, about... Uh, there's some who would argue that the decline of union membership has been solely due to <coughs> the kind of assault by the Thatcher and subsequent governments, solely due to kind of hostile uh, legislative uh, environment. Um, I think there's, there's obviously other factors that are involved too, and, and, and we can't just put it down uh, to that. And it sort of reminded me of the, the strange death of liberal England, the idea that, you know, what, what was, uh, was the union movement kind of fine as it was and then kind of hit by the bus of union legislation or what were, were there other factors involved and um, one of those factors is obviously economic change 
So we've seen a very significant decline uh, in heavily unionized sectors, particularly manufacturing, and also a relative decline in other areas that are heavily unionized, like the public sector, which has shrunk as a proportion of the uh, economy as a whole in recent decades. Uh, and so even if membership remained the same in each, in each sector, we would expect to see a fall. Um, but that doesn't account for the, uh, the, all of the decline in union membership and bargaining coverage. Um, and we should also remember that what we shouldn't see this economic change as some sort of exogenous factor because the decline of manufacturing and indeed the public sector, relative decline, um, it was in part a political project. Um, alongside the shift in the composition of the uh, economy, there's also been uh, a shift in, in terms of the nature of employers, so like the breaking up of big nationalised industries and the move to more towards a kind of atomised workforce and more towards remote working, which is just more difficult to, to organise. Um, the second point is a sustained uh, political attack on the, the union movement. Uh, so we saw, uh, which uh, we was mentioned at the end of the presentations this morning, um, a significant uh, series of legislative restrictions on the freedom of, of trade unions, which have left uh, the kind of organising environment in the UK to be one of the most restrictive uh, that, that we have among advanced economies. Um, and we've also seen a sustained uh, kind of attack from m large parts of the um, media uh, over an, a number of decades. But an interesting thing is that strong latent support for trade unions uh, remains. So this is a graph which shows uh, the uh, proportion of adults in the UK, a tracker poll by Ipsos Murray, um, that believe that trade unions are essential to protect workers' interests. And what you can see is that's actually increased slightly, the green line at the top, uh, in, in recent decades. So uh, four in five workers still think trade unions are vital to protecting workers' interests. Interestingly, that's even higher among young people who are much less likely to join trade unions. So strong latent support for trade unions. And the percentage of uh, adults who say that trade unions have got too much power has absolutely plummeted. So in 1975, it was about 80%, uh, and it's almost reversed. So very, very few people now say that trade unions uh, have got too much power. Uh, and I think there's been a, a, a kind of shift in the terms of the public debate on trade unions as well in recent years. So this was a statement from Archbishop Welby at the TUC Congress. He said, there must be unions in the gig economy. There must be unions in industries being automated, where they're lacking at the moment, lacking in the gig economy as well, relatively. Unions wherever workers are most vulnerable, again, relatively lacking. Uh, there must be a new unionisation or president, there will be a new victimisation. So that was his kind of rallying call uh, at Congress about how, why, why we need uh, more union membership and more union membership where it's needed most. And kind of interesting voices are also flagging this. So The Economist recently had an article about how the decline of union uh, membership is a, is a cause for concern. Uh, Andy Haldane did a really fascinating speech on why we've seen this uh, phenomenon of very high employment but very low wage growth. And one of the things he points to is casualisation in the labour market and the decline of the union movement. So there's some interesting voices now recognising the need for stronger unions. Um, so I will just cover three brief slides on uh, our recommendations. Um, so we argued that government should promote a, a <coughs> renaissance of collective bargaining to improve wages and working conditions. Um, so because this is for two reasons largely. The first is because 
we would argue that the government kind of uh, assaults on, on the union movement and the kind of hostile environment that's been created is part of the problem so that they can be part of the solution. But also many of the things that even the current government claim to want to address, low pay, low productivity, uh, lack of employer investment in training, uh, all of these things trade unions are, are your, your allies in, in addressing. Um, so we made a, a number of recommendations uh, some of this builds on the uh, work that the Institute for Employment Rights have done in their manifesto for, for labour law. Um, so we suggested there should be a, a minister for labour, a minister of state for labour, who should be tasked with doubling the coverage of collective bargaining, which is currently about, I think, 25% uh, to 50% of workers by 2030, um, which should be supported both by promoting sectoral collective bargaining uh, in low-paid sectors and in supporting firm level collective bargaining. So I think uh, whereas the IER have called for kind of sectoral collective bargaining uh, economy wide, um, we, we argued in our report that there should be an immediate focus on low pay, low productivity, uh, low skill sectors, um, where there's a large number of workers who are, uh, and these work in sectors tend to be low union membership. Uh, we, we argue that these should be the priorities and these should be the areas where government should step in um, to uh, convene a, a sector forum and encourage uh, sectoral collective uh, bargaining. Um, there's, uh, we did this report focused on social care, which made the case in, uh, for collective bargaining in social care. And I think there's, no, there's nowhere more needed than in social care. And the contrast with the NHS is really fascinating because in much of the work provided by the NHS and, and social care workers is, is relatively uh, similar. Um, it's a vital public service supporting some of the most vulnerable in society, but uh, in the NHS, we have a unionized, heavily unionized workforce. Um, we've got sectoral collective bargaining, um, which agree decent terms and conditions um, and cover a wide variety of things, not just pay, but things like training and professional standards. And then in the social care, you have a wild west of an atomized workforce, uh, very low union membership, the uh, vast majority uh, are women. Uh, it's a, it's a seen as a low-skill sector, even though the work is <laughs> crucially important um, and requires a lot of, of skill and, and capacity. Um, and half of care workers are paid below the living wage. And, and that contrast between an organised uh, kind of NHS and a, and a kind of fractured, fragmented social care system is, um, is quite stark. Um, in addition to uh, sectoral collective bargaining to kind of set a floor under which employers can't, can't fall um, and to drive up standards uh, across these sectors, we also uh, call for um, uh, additional measures to support firm level collective bargaining. Um, and we suggest that could be uh, achieved through a number of means, including <coughs> lowering the uh, threshold for uh, statutory recognition, um, allowing greater access to, excuse me, to tr for trade unions to uh, employers and workplaces, uh, and also using procurement to favour uh, employers with uh, a, set, uh, a collective agreement. Uh, penultimate slide, uh, we argue that trade unions uh, should be supported to recruit and innovate. Um, uh, we, uh, obviously this is, you know, this is something that trade unions are doing, they are innovating, and there's some really interesting stuff going on in lots of areas of the gig economy, 
um, with new insurgent unions like IWGB, but then long-established unions like GMB and Unite organising in uh, kind of low-paid, uh, low-skilled sectors and, and informal workplaces. Um, and there's also really interesting work going on by the TUC. Uh, their uh, program called, I think it's called Work Smart, um, which is a, a way of targeting um, low-paid young workers in, in private <coughs> services sectors. Um, but we think that more could be done to help unions to recruit and innovate. So we call for uh, a right of access um, to support unions to recruit, giving them the kind of physical uh, access to, to workplaces. And this builds on a model which was introduced in New Zealand where trade unions could request uh, access, I think it was 24 hours minimum notice. So they would give uh, 24 hours notice saying we want to come and speak to workers in your, in your workplace. Um, and it can only be refused on exceptional circumstances and there's a, there's a right of appeal if unions are uh, locked out. Um, that uh, was scrapped by the, so it was introduced by the Labour government, scrapped by the, success, uh, the, the national government, um, despite a, a review saying that it had no negative impact on employers um, and it's looking to be brought back by the current uh, government. Um, but we believe alongside this physical right of access, um, government should look at a digital uh, right of access. So a right for unions to be able to send communications to workers if, you're, if you've got like a, a peripatetic workforce who's, who's remote and working uh, not at a fixed workplace. So social care, for example, you could stand outside the office of a social care provider and not come into contact with any care workers. Um, we've also called it for a right to join, uh, to encourage workers to join a union. Um, so this would require uh, employers to uh, present a, a statement uh, on, on any contract which sets out an employee's right to join a trade union uh, and a number of unions that they could join, um, in, in including the option to um, have membership subsidized on payroll. And again, this is in recognition of the kind of strong latent support for trade unions, the fact that many people support them, but many people don't join. So it's using that kind of trigger point of, of joining an organization uh, to give people the option to enroll, uh, to, to, to become a union member. And then we also looked at auto-enrolment. Um, so this builds on the um, fantastic success of pensions auto-enrolment, where just tr changing the, tr the kind of automatic from not being a, signing up to a, uh, into pay into a pension to automatically paying into a pension when an employee joins an organisation, um, obviously with a right to opt out. And that's in a fantastic increase in uh, people paying into a pension, obviously still not paying in enough generally, but it, the coverage in the private sector has increased hugely, and also coverage has increased most in groups that previously were paying into a pension least. So we've suggested that uh, a trial for pensions auto-enrolment uh, should be done uh, in the gig economy, so for workers kind of selling uh, their labour on, uh, on digital platforms, uh, because these are the workers who are often you know, most vulnerable uh, most kind of remote, uh, very low union membership, uh, and so something we could we could look at. And then finally on this, we also called for a worker tech innovation fund. Um, there's some interesting stuff going on here, like the um, Resolution Trust has got a, a fund which they uh, support kind of startups to create what they call worker tech, uh, but this is kind of largely non-unions. So we think building on the uh, previous Labour government's union modernisation fund, uh, there should be a worker tech innovation fund which uh, supports trade unions to embrace digital technology to, to recruit and organise. Uh, and we suggested this could be paid for by 
uh, a surcharge on compensation payments paid by employers at employment tribunals. So employers who violate uh, employment rights pay for this fund. Uh, finally, uh, we argued that trade unions should be seen as and embraced as social partners uh, in industrial strategy and industrial democracy. Um, and the point we, we made is that um, the UK needs stronger unions. There's an imbalance of power in the labour market, but stronger unions doesn't necessarily mean uh, industrial unrest. Um, there are a number of uh, countries uh, in the OECD um, where you have very high union membership, very strong uh, collective bargaining coverage, um, and low levels of industrial unrest. So you don't have to have uh, very high levels of industrial strife um, uh, alongside union uh, membership and collective bargaining coverage. Uh, and part of this is about government's approach. So we argued that the government should support social partnership um, through having unions represented on sectoral institutions, on national economic institutions, uh, and uh, on, on company boards too. Um, and I think uh, the, the Theresa May's conversion to workers on boards was, was mentioned at the, at the start, but it should, say, should be said that she's since rolled back and said that it could be a non-executive director who's uh, designated as a worker representative, which um, I think uh, Francis O'Grady said was like putting a, uh, a cloth cap on, uh, on, a, on a Ned and just saying that they're a worker representative. Um, so, you know, this is more about moving towards that uh, European model that we heard about um, unions being uh, engaged as partners in the running of the economy. Um, also alongside, uh, we've, we talked about the role of sector deals, so the government's uh, got this new industrial strategy and they're developing sector deals which have almost no uh, representation of workers on them. So it's basically employers and the government talking about how to further the interests of the sector and they're obviously missing out a stakeholder uh, there. And then finally we talked about the role of unions in a managed acceleration of automation. So there's a lot of kind of nervousness and a lot of scare stories about how many millions of jobs will be automated by advancing technology, but uh, the evidence uh, we found in a previous report was that jobs are much more likely to be changed rather than disappeared, um, but that there is a risk for people who are going to have to adapt. Um, and also there's a big risk that it could lead to a very large increase in inequality because the returns to owners of capital would uh, likely to increase far greater than the returns to people who are selling their labour. Uh, and so we've suggested that trade unions should be uh, very in involved both at the firm level, the sector level and, and nationally in managing uh, this automation process and in making sure that it works for, for, for employees rather than just for uh, employers. Um, and as we have this increase in productivity that automation will enable, we look at how that feeds through to, to workers, either in increased wages or in the politics of time. And there's a really, really interesting kind of uh, advancing debate about how we manage workplace time, you know, talk about a four-day week, and some trade unions making deals uh, around working time as, as, as well as uh, wages. So, uh, and I should say, obviously, unions have long been involved in, in pushing the debate on, on working time, but it's, it's, it's time to look at that again in the light of automation. Uh, so those are our ideas. Um, a role for the state in promoting collective bargaining, sector level and firm level, a role for the state in supporting union membership and innovation, and trade unions to be embraced as social partners to promote um, uh, social partnership. Uh, so I look forward to hearing the others and to taking your questions after. Thanks. Thank you.